Support for this episode comes from SAS. SAS is going all in on AI to help the world get more done with data. See for yourself in Las Vegas, April 16th to 19th at SAS Innovate, the data and AI experience for everyone and every role from top executives to data scientists, engineers, analysts, and more. I'll be there leading a panel discussion about the importance of responsible AI. It's just one of the many sessions that will highlight the massive potential of AI. Visit innovate.sas.com and use the code CARA to save $100 on registration. I'll see you there. Support for Pivot comes from Klaviyo. There are plenty of AI tools out there to help your marketing strategy, but you'd be hard-pressed to find one built like Klaviyo. Klaviyo AI guides you with predictive insights so you can more accurately see what your customers want and when they want it. It uses both real-time and historical data and can make it all make sense for you. That way you can say goodbye to tedious tasks and work smarter. You can join brands including Everyman Jack, who've optimized their marketing strategy and driven more revenue with Klaviyo AI. Klaviyo powers smarter digital relationships. Visit klaviyo.com slash vox to learn more. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash vox. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm in Sao Paulo, Kara. Are you? Oh, that's why you're exhausted. Scott was just telling me he's exhausted by all this, although he's been tweeting away. Mm-hmm. How what is it there in Brazil? Uh, it's great. Um, so I went surfing this weekend or held on to a, a board for dear life. And now I'm in Sao Paulo, which has some of the best food and best architecture in the world. And it's also it, it the does. most populous city in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm actually very bullish on Brazil. I think Brazil's about to have a, another moment, if you will. Really? Well... Okay. Um, yeah. Well, if you think about it, I mean, not that you asked, but it it's stocks traded a multiple of seven versus 20 uh, in the U.S. And I think the reason you're seeing SoftBank mm-hmm. down here is I think a lot of investors who think that the American tech trade may be running out of breath instead of they traditionally look east or west, I think they're going to start looking south. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to see there's a ton of innovation down here, interesting startups. Anyways, I'm bullish on Brazil. Yeah, interesting government situation, but uh, but nonetheless, I've been there many times. I love Brazil, um, and Sao Paulo is one that people don't. They tend to go elsewhere in Brazil for more fun, but Sao Paulo is really the biggest, one of the biggest, most important cities in that part of the world. Twelve million people. It's the fourth largest city in the world, and uh, does is responsible for a third of the GDP here. It's really interesting, and culture is catching up. People think of Rio. Rio used to kind of overshadows it because of that incredible collision of sea, sky, and land that is really dramatic. But I think some European cities, the culture leads the economy. And I think here the economy came first and now culture starting to catch up. But I'm actually a big fan. I think I think, uh, I think Sao Paulo is an interesting city. Anyways, I'm long Sao Paulo in Brazil. Yes. Today we'll talk about Elon Musk's sudden reversal of fortune at Twitter. We'll also get into the Warner Brothers Discovery merger, and I'll speak with author Kathy O'Neill about public shaming, the good, the bad, and the part that makes everyone feel ugly. So we have a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on. I know you feel like you're a little jet-lagged, but we'll try to press on if that's okay. A little jet-lagged. A little jet-lagged for the dog. A little bit. A little bit. Okay. Did we do a lot of drinking and hanging? Yeah, I've been doing all of those things. Yeah, you look a little sun-soaked right there. Yeah, a little red. Little red. Did you use any sunscreen? You're supposed to do it in that part. I don't have a forehead. I have a five head, and I literally need seven or eight bottles of sunscreen if I just like take my hat off. It is dangerous for me to be in the water. I look like the great white sperm whale that's breached and died all of a sudden. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> all right, you're in that kind of mood. Excellent. Yeah. So let's start with Jared Kushner's private equity firm received two billion dollars from a Saudi fund led by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, which some mm-hmm. people call him. Uh, uh, Mohammed bin um, Mohammed Bonsal thug is what I call him. According to the New York Times report, the investment came six months after Kushner left the White House. Saudi panel uh, that advises the fund reportedly advised against the investment, citing Kushner's inexperience and a wide range of. This is a big, uh, big, big stop sign. We wouldn't invest if it were us. But lucky for Jared. Days later, the panel was overruled. Inside the Trump administration, Kushner played a role in defending the crown prince after U.S. intelligence concluded he had approved the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. So I guess mm-hmm. it's a payback for him in a in a positive way. Uh, incompetent investor, but why not give him money? What do you think about that? I think it's part of a larger trend in America moving towards capitalism to cronyism. Capitalism doesn't survive unless there's a rule of fair play, and that has to start at the top. Mm-hmm. 
And it, it yeah. happens everywhere. When the Speaker of the House can trade stocks, which is insane, mm-hmm. when she can call Jerome Powell and say, "What do you f- how are you thinking about interest rates? And then, and then over pillow talk, her husband mm-hmm. the next day trades stocks. That is corruption. When, when <laughs> these, these congressmen and senators, like the moment they leave, start making millions of dollars lobbying for the same firms they were listening to and let them write the laws around crypto, which is happening in states all over the nation, mm-hmm. that is corruption. And when an individual who takes a role as a senior advisor is is saying, do not, do not punish the Saudis for their crimes against, for murder and assaulting journalists, uh, and then a few months later, takes billions of dollars mm-hmm. in what is clearly a pay for a payback. He's unqualified. He's totally unqualified. And by the way, the the right. Gulf the Gulf yeah. funds, alter investments, they're very sophisticated. They hire some of the brightest people in the world. It was it was PIF, the public investment fund of I think yeah. the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. It was actually the adult in the room on WeWork that called yes. Masa and said, "Okay." Stop with the crazy mm-hmm. shit. We're no longer funding your adventures and crazy. These are very sophisticated investors. Uber, they had they were in Uber. And so as a result, when they looked at Jared's fund, they said, this is a Joey Bag of Donuts, ridiculous fucking amateur hour. We're not investing. So the fact they got money is nothing but payback. And it's 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 part of a larger trend that affects the left and the right. If you want to serve you're the most deliberative body in the world. If you want to work for the greatest experiment in history, and that is the United States government, you we have to acquit ourselves of this type of conflict and corruption. And the thing is, Kara, it's getting worse, not better. Well, the only problem is it's happened since the beginning of time, and it's just accelerated here with the Trumps criming in plain sight, right? I mean, either whether it was the gift story that they just keep the gifts, and apparently the Saudis leave bags of jewels on people's and money on people's beds when they visit there. Um, so I think they're just they, they didn't keep track of gifts they were given um, or any of the protocols. So even pretending that you were not part of this, but this whole revolving door has been is nothing new between whether Dick Cheney went to Halliburton or you know it just. It's it's not new. It's just ob- more obvious to people, and as even more as you know, w- the way people feel about the government being just part of a scam is r- probably really higher than ever. So I don't know. I find this one particularly distasteful, especially when people are talking about Hunter Biden. Which, by the way, look, he obviously uh, benefited from being the son of Joe Biden, but in this case, it's an out and out trade of money especially when the Saudis themselves were saying this is just a terrible investment. It feels like a payoff in this regard, a very obvious payoff. Yeah, and I do think we can fix it. When I was in public finance at our fixed income at Morgan Stanley, I remember the East mm-hmm. Bay Municipal Utility District, we were financing mm-hmm. new a new hydroelectric power plant or some such, and they were in town, the treasurer, and I said, let's grab dinner. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, okay, fine. And when the check came, he said, I have to, I, I have to pay for dinner. Right, right. Uh, you know, there are, you can solve this stuff. And when you have dinner with a journalist, usually they say, yes, no, yeah. I'm paying. So I don't, I, I think there are, there are ways, I, don't, I think this is a very solvable problem. I think this is actually one of our more mm-hmm. solvable problems. In All right. Well, I, I don't know. I just think this is very typical and they're just doing it in plain sight. And in this case, it's a payoff for his behavior. And, you know, the amount of money he and his wife made while in office is really quite large. And, um, you know, it, it's it's basically just, just making it what's been clear for years. This is often government can be a kleptocracy. So as, as, they, as it's happened in other countries in which we make fun of, but in fact, this is where we are in that regard. Um, I hope, I wish there was mm-hmm. something they could do, but they, there's no benefit from being in government except that you benefit afterwards, right? You don't make money. There's this insane wealth of people that are constantly, um, you know, even the president's coming out and doing these books and these speeches and these, you know, everything they do. It's sort of like, it's not it's not limited to anyone, um, but it's certainly, um, you know, everything's for sale. That's really pretty much it. And I think people know that. And that's why people have such disdain for the government. I don't know how the people who are doing this can pass laws about this, right? I don't know how that happens. And I think the Trump's just, you know, the Trump family crime organization just decided to make it explicit rather than implicit. And to me, it's the same thing because it goes, you know, this is a talk about a bipartisan thing here. Um, From what I understand, for example, uh, Kevin McCarthy is out in Silicon Valley right now saying, you know, I'll slow down this legislation if you give us money right now to get in office in the midterms to tech companies and stuff. It's just, it's all, it's mm-hmm. all quite, 
it's a it's scammerific, as I would like to say. Hmm. Anyway, speaking of that topic, uh, thousands of Etsy vendors are on strike this week. A move comes in response to Etsy raising transaction fees from 5% to 6.5%. A petition calls on Etsy to cancel the fee increase, crack down on resellers, improve support, let the sellers opt out uh, of off-site ads. The petition has over 28,000 signatures as of Monday morning. Another thing of these power of the platforms, it's, it's not just limited to Apple, let's just say. These platforms have enormous power over sellers, whether it's Amazon or Apple or anybody else. And uh, some of these people are fighting back because they're the ones that sort of paint the fence for these companies. What do you think about that? Yeah, again, I, I'd love to see the data on what's happening across mm -hmm. union membership because I think there are some very well-publicized mm -hmm. examples. I, I just don't know if 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 this is more than just mm -hmm. like just that well-publicized small examples. I'd like to see the numbers on actual union. Mm -hmm. I, I bet union membership is either flat to down in the last 12 months when you look at the gross numbers, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. But this isn't union membership. These are people, sellers on these platforms. They don't have a union necessarily. They're just united, which is, is somewhat different. If these people sort of are at the mercy of these platforms, there has something has to settle out here. And I, I'm, I find it more important than you do that people are 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 pushing back whether it's government doing this or or platforms or something like that is that they're not getting their fair share and i think it's a very resonant um thing for politics the, the idea that there should be more equalization around data around personal data around your role on a platform what you contribute and things like that i'm not one that just thinks the rich get richer and that that workers sort of get screwed i think there is a, a movement of people who feel like it's time i think but maybe i'm maybe i'm being too positive what the federal government uh, should have been doing for a long time and isn't or hasn't been doing finally the market it's gotten so bad that the market stepped in in the form of Frontline workers are just just a, enough. Mm -hmm. And there's now supply and demand is so out of whack. And while everyone acts as if their hair's on fire because someone won't bring them their Cobb salad for nine bucks an hour, meanwhile, CEOs are making 23% more mm -hmm. year on year. Finally, frontline workers and lower wage workers have said, no, we'd rather just not work or do something else, whether it's working mm -hmm. at an Amazon warehouse for 22 bucks an hour or flipping on a gig app, whatever it might be. And so the market is adjusting. It shouldn't have come to this. It should have, the federal government should have, should have moved in a long time ago, in my view, and ensured certain minimum working standards, including wages for people. But it, the market is finally moving in, if you will. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I would agree. I just think there's more going to happen here. It, it, perhaps I'm wrong, but I think there's, there's more clear. It has the same idea as the Kushner thing that the rich get richer and they grab what they want and the others don't get that. And I think it's I think there's going to be a pushback on it. But anyway, speaking of which, let's get to our first big story. Elon Musk has tweeted himself out of a job. The world's richest man will no longer join the board of Twitter after he spent the weekend tweeting policy proposals and criticism of the platform. Uh, among his ideas, Twitter Blue should cost about $2 per month and include a lot more. Subscribers should receive an authentication checkmark, but not the same one that verified users get. Users should be able to pay in Dogecoin, maybe. There should be no ads. He also thought we should take the W out of Twitter and apparently call it Titter, which I actually thought the Trump social network should be called that. Musk has since deleted some of those tweets, including one in which he suggested uh, turning Twitter's headquarters into a homeless shelter. Jeff Bezos tweeted his support of that idea. That seemed odd. Also, some of those ideas, the good ones, Scott has been pitching Twitter subscriptions since at least uh, a year, two years or more. Um, so he's not quite the insufferable numbskull that Elon uh, thinks because he's actually using Scott's ideas and uh, many other people's ideas. So uh, Elon lasted less than one Scaramucci at Twitter. So what do you think, Scott? So I read about this and thought, okay, what is likely happening here? And at this point, it's just speculation. Mm -hmm. But my guess is that one of the following things has happened. Somebody at the SEC or someone with knowledge of how actually the SEC works that should have been in the room all along has said, okay, these polls are a problem in and among themselves. You, They connote that you're testing things that might have be revealing insider information. They don't help management to begin testing management ideas going around management. When you are at a company where the employees are your key asset, as they are at almost any firm, but especially at a services firm, and you're headquartered in San Francisco to start tweeting, should this be a homeless shelter? And worse, 
I, I don't mind vulgarity and profanity. I'm a vulgar, profane person. But when I'm on the board of a company that has what I call any type, mm-hmm. you just don't, you don't say, should we call the company titter? That, that is not on a risk-adjusted basis mm-hmm. a smart thing to yeah. do for a director who's supposed to be serving as a fiduciary for employees. It just goes back to this notion that yeah. you know, when you get this rich, you can start acting like a child all the time. And then you decide a few days later, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not going on yeah. the board because he's probably figured out he was going to have to report his sales and his purchases. And it's a lot more fun to heckle from the cheap seats than to actually be a grown-up. And you have to be sort of a grown-up when you're on the board. That's my take. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts, Kara? Well, I think the words in the in the tweet. I think Twitter has made a mess of this. I have to say because they let him on. They seem to let him on. They had him on the website. They have all these very good board members who must be like horrified, right? And not in this sort of pearl clutching way. But what the hell is happening here? Like that's how Elon and others would like to paint it, um, but as, and make it into a circus that it's not. Um, this is a company with employees and everything else. And I don't want to seem like mama here, but oh, for goodness' sake! Um, I did laugh at the titter thing because I. Had made that joke previously. Um, but uh, but you're right. He's not, he's not, he's not quite, he, he, when he has his companies, he can do this, right? His board lets him do this. And that's up to the SEC to intervene, which it never does. In this case, it's someone else's company and he can't come in and crap all over it like this. It just can't. He can, he can make suggestions internally. He can have mm-hmm. a lot of influence. He could work with people. He could, but he, that's not his style. So that's what I said. It's what he, but someone's like, how can he do this? I'm like, this is who he is. And so if it's not his company that he has full control, of, that's an issue. So in the letter, Twitter said fiduciary. They were like mm-hmm. risks. Um, they were using all kinds of words, background check. That's always like, whoa, what ha- What did they find? Like, you know, who knows? Um, and they sort of sending all these warning shots that to me were really odd. Um, they must be under huge legal pressure right now, including shareholder lawsuits. And then lastly, um, you know, he could do a hostile takeover now, presumably, although it's, it would seem like a stupid financial move on his part. But he certainly could gather some of his more obnoxious friends. I mean, this weekend, Peter Thiel took a, took a ridiculously cheap shot at Warren Buffett at a Bitcoin conference, just again, for the cheap seats of the bros that cheer him on. What a child. So anyway, it just feels like this idea of flamethrowers and rockets and tunnels is not the same thing as what he's doing now. So what do you think he's going to do? We predicted this last week. I think he's going to get bored of it and move on. And the summary that we put forward last week, mm-hmm. I think, is is uh, cogent. And that is, there are few people who've added more value to the things they focus on. But when it's a side hustle, mm-hmm. whether it's Etsy or Dogecoin or Bitcoin, or in this case, Twitter, he brings volatility, mm-hmm. not value. And I think there's a lesson here. I always try, like it or not, Elon Musk is probably the role model for more young men globally than any man in the world right now, whether he deserves that position or not. And what Mm. I would encourage young men to think about is when you walk into a situation and you have some power and you have some influence, ask yourself, am I here to add value or to create volatility? Because it's a sugar high and it feeds into your testosterone around risk-taking and feeling aggressive and important to start rocking the boat and saying things because Mm. you can but are you adding any value? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I, I think he serves as a, as a lesson, a cautionary lesson around how power corrupts. I think it's a cautionary lesson around how our institutions have lost a lot of ability to push back against individuals like this. And imagine, how much do you think Twitter management and the board have gotten done in the last two weeks? Zero. It's all been a circus. It's been a ridiculous boy circus, you know, essentially. Like, you know ridiculous. It's like Jackass. It's like the movie that's coming out. I'm going to enjoy seeing it, but this is what it's like. It's like an ongoing Jack episode of Jackass, which is funny when they're shooting people out of cannons, but not here. He can't take over the company, Kara. As wealthy as he is, it would be about a $50 billion check. He doesn't have that kind of liquidity. And then, and, and then the question would be, and then what? <laughs> he clearly doesn't have real interest or understanding of the issues here. He has what I would call a pathological need, similar to our last president, to be in the news every 48 hours. And the ability, the the desire to actually help Twitter was vastly outweighed by his inability to continue to act like a man-child. And so he said, he either said, I'm out of here, or the SEC called Twitter and said, you can't put him on your board. He's violated too many securities regulations. So this was a two-week misadventure 
and what it means to be a man-child in a, an economy where we let people who are worth over a certain amount of money behave this way. What's Twitter's role here, culpability? Because look, we all know what Elon does. And I know I'm not, someone said I was like saying he should be able to do this. He just does this. I don't know what to say. I'm, again, I'm not his mama, but the SEC lets him. Twitter let him. Um, Twitter presumably is not full of man children, although you might think they are, but they're not. And so here, this is a this is a public company. What is their culpability? And like saying he was on the board when he wasn't quite confirmed for the board, you know, didn't say subject to a background check, didn't like, it feels like they were trying to control him and keep him in a bottle, and he's not to be kept in a bottle, essentially. And uh, he thought he would get all the a great taste, less filling kind of thing going on, all the all the benefits and none of the negatives about being on a board like this, because he's used to running wild over his boards, right, public company boards. And so I, I, what is Twitter's role here from your perspective? Well, I don't know if Twitter had a responsibility or how much they knew about his lack of disclosure once he breached the mm -hmm. 5%. If they knew about that, and then the question is, do they have an obligation to file a 13D or disclose that they knew he'd blown past the 5% mm -hmm. and was acting actively? I don't know if that responsibility is on them. I don't think Twitter is culpable here. I think Twitter, when they have a 9% shareholder say, I want to be involved, I actually think the smart thing to do is to, to offer them a board seat and to welcome them. I, I don't think Twitter is culpable. Mm -hmm. When the board member then starts taking polls, then starts going mm -hmm. around management, then starts this series of adolescent behavior that creates a distraction for the board, all of a sudden the board turns into all these circus clowns following the elephant scooping up his shit. Like within, within 10 minutes, they're like, Jesus Christ, maybe we made an error in judgment and somebody's got to call this guy and speak to his lawyers and say, just so you know, this is what it means to be on a real board. And we're trying to pretend we're a real board. So I don't really fault Twitter here. This is about Elon Musk and his lack of control and our society's willingness to enable him. Yeah, I get it. I think they were trying to control the situation. Um, and and that was that was why. They tried to control this person who is not controllable, which we warn people. Like, he's not going to be controlled. He's not going to shut up. No. He doesn't want to be on a real kid board. Um, and I think one of these things is these boards can be so indulgent, but in this case, not so much. And then when he said it's going to be lit with the pot stuff, it's just, this is not a look that Twitter wants to have. And again, small company. Now, one thing I do think, if his rich friends start getting involved, they could do this as a game. You know, they could, they could, they, they don't mind wasting money. Peter Thiel, look at the things he's been saying. They've got unlimited funds. So, you know, they could, they could do some damage here if they wanted to. Um, so that's my only thing is that they could, there's, I've seen various scenarios of how they could do a hostile takeover. It certainly would be a disaster financially for him. Um, and he should focus on the things he does well, like cars and space and things like that. But there's something about, you know, he just can't quit Twitter. You know, this is a romance and a very toxic one at this point that he can't quit. So it'll be interesting to see what the next moves. He may just move on and hopefully avoid uh, an SEC problem, but we'll see. What do you predict? We made this prediction last week. He gets bored and he leaves. And it happened in about mm -hmm. 96 hours. And his boredom was expedited yeah. by some limited amount of requirements that he act like an adult, not capable of doing that. I'm out of here. I'll go find things that I can continue to act more, be more of an adolescent. And also, this has been bad for shareholders because a combination of his wealth and his errant behavior has made him a walking poison pill. And that is the firm is no longer mm -hmm. acquirable. Because everyone's going to say, mm -hmm. well, is he buying more shares? Might he might he hook up with another takerist like Peter Thiel? No one is moving in here now. So this is ultimately, what is this? It's more volatility yeah. than value, a walking poison pill, and huge distraction uh, for the management team. I'm not sure they were coming in. I've talked to a lot of CEOs who might have bought this company, and they they were like, we weren't getting near this thing. Like, I've, I've made my rounds. You know what I mean? And they were like, ha, ha. Like any, mm -hmm. anyone who was, no way, we're not touching this. But I, I, I just think they weren't touching it before, but now they're really not touching it. In any case, um, I think we're going to have to keep watching this story. I think it's a distraction for Twitter, which was trying to sort of bring itself back up under this new CEO. I think they hugged him a little too hard right at the beginning. They could have been, had a little more like, we're excited, we'll see, that kind of thing. And they didn't do that. They were trying to slow him down. And he is unstoppable. 
you know, when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, one of them has to get out of the way. And in this case, they were not going to rein in this guy. And he doesn't care to be reined in. And we'll see what the government does. Um, but I suspect not a lot. I, I just really don't see them moving in either. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens, Scott. Um, we're going to go on a quick break. When we come back, Warner Brothers begins its new chapter. And we'll speak with a friend of Pivot, Kathy O'Neill, about online shaming. Support for Pivot comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software, including Jira, Confluence, and Trello, help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for Pivot comes from Klaviyo. When you're marketing your business, there's a ton of data to keep track of, and you need the right tool to help you make sense of it all. For that, you might want Klaviyo in your arsenal. Klaviyo helps brands get smarter with their marketing. Their AI is built differently than anyone else. It combines a ton of real-time and historical customer data points for you in full detail and makes sense of it all for you. It guides you with predictive analytics, so when you use Klaviyo AI, you get smarter insights without all the heavy lifting. You can more accurately see what your customers want and when they want it. You can work smarter and be more confident in your decision-making. You can join brands who've optimized their marketing strategy with Klaviyo AI, including, for example, men's personal care brand Everyman Jack. They've used Klaviyo's AI-powered predictive analytics to generate personalized predictions about each of their subscribers. That, in turn, helped them deliver top-notch customer experiences and drive more revenue. Klaviyo powers smarter digital relationships. Visit klaviyo.com slash vox to learn more. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash vox. Scott, we're back with our second big story. We're going to do it very quickly. The odds of a Shark Week Sex in the City crossover just went up. The merger of Warner Media and Discovery closed on Friday. The deal brings Warner Brothers, CNN, HBO, and the same company as the Food Network, TLC, and HGTV. And leading it all, David Zasloff, one of the highest paid CEOs in media at $246.6 million. A lot of that's in stock, but still. On Monday, shares of the newly formed Warner Brothers Discovery briefly surged before falling. They haven't been doing very well, and it also has... $55 billion in debt. Uh, some people, Hollywood people, sort of pals of Zaz, which they call them that, um, are saying this is going to be a big surprise. I, you and I do not feel that way. I feel it's too small. The The debt is huge. They're going to try to do savings of $3 billion, which means lay, layouts. They might merge streaming services, HBO Max with Discovery Plus and possibly CNN Plus. So what do you think about this so far? Just very briefly, what is the long and the short of it from your perspective? The things that will impact the future of the new Discovery, Warner, or Warner Plus, whatever they're calling it, are things people aren't talking about. One, interest mm -hmm. rates with $55 billion in debt. Interest rates just play a big role in your life. Yeah. Uh, two, if they're, able, if they're able to cut costs and show synergy around, I think it's 110 million subscribers they have combined, and mm -hmm. be a viable number two to Netflix, that will start to take the stock up and make things easier for them. And three, if there's huge pressure on AT&T to reduce their debt and an activist shows up and says, I'll take HBO for 20 or 30 billion, I mean, what would HBO be worth to Amazon or Apple, right? Mm -hmm. Then it might get broken up because the thing, and the thing people don't talk about, it's a single class share of stock and similar to Twitter, the reason we're going through this nonsense with Twitter is because it's a single class of shares and can be acquired. And that same is true now of Discovery. It has a single class of shares. Mm -hmm. So I think- Vulnerable. In, and I'll go to my prediction because I have to log off here because the wireless is so bad in Brazil after me talking up Brazil forever. You're going to see an activist in here in the next 12 to 24 months, Kara, because mm -hmm. 
-hmm. At some point, Zaslav will deliver all of the calories of streaming, really high cost, with none of the great taste. It won't have the growth of Netflix or Disney+. Plus. The stock mm -hmm. will get hit when they look at that $55 billion in debt overhang. And then someone will show up to their 71% shareholder and say, how'd you like to take your debt down here by 20 or $30 billion and I'll take one mm -hmm. of these amazing assets off your hands and the thing's gonna get broken up. So unless they get traction mm -hmm. fast, I mean, and how fast, an activist is gonna come in here. This is now, this is now the best assets assembled in the media world that is technically mm -hmm. in play from day one. Yeah, this is something Elon should be looking at or somebody. Absolutely. Uh, the smart people. Don't even people say should... that. Jesus Christ, don't even say that. Well, he's not going to come in here. He doesn't know how to do this. This is got, this, oh, There's God. plenty of interest here. No, there's pl he's not going to win against an Apple or an anybody else. Um, but I think what's, that's an interesting thing. So what activist or company, correct? Oh, it could be any number. If this thing, if this thing pukes and at some point every company hits a bad quarter, Mm -hmm. You could see anyone from Dan Loeb or Ackman or... It feels like Loeb. There's a ton yeah. of Elliot come in and say, we've done a sum of the parts analysis, and they don't even have to come in. They just go straight to Stanky and say, we'd like to do a deal here and mm -hmm. help you reduce some of that debt. Right. And as right. interest rates go up, um, it, they're going to be fairly receptive to these ideas. So this company either has to show that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts pretty damn fast, and also that they mm -hmm. know that the synergy around streaming is real, like pronto, or this is going to be a dinner bell for activists and private yeah. equity firms. I feel like we should form a DAO and buy it. That's what I feel. I think we should have done that with Twitter. I'm in. I, you know what I mean? It's interesting because the one of the things- dog DAO. <laughs> Crazier things have happened. <laughs> we should. Because, you know, Casey and I talked about that in Chicago. Why didn't we- why don't we form a down by Twitter now, like, or something like that? We'll call it the Jungle Cat and her roommate's down. <laughs> Not my roommate, my butler. But one of the things we, when we talk about antitrust, I was at this conference with uh, Senator Klobuchar, et cetera. Uh, by one estimate, in 1983, 50 companies own 90% of American media. Today, the number is down to six to 12. That said, this is too small. This is too small. It just is too friggin' small and, and not enough technology. Right. I don't know what else to say. And I've said this to David Zasloff, and he's like, we know how to make content. I'm like, so does anyone with money. Like, they can buy their way into this so easily. Um, and I, not in the Sony way, not in the old, you know, they, that's the, that's their pattern mapping is Sony coming in and losing all kinds. These people are very smart. This is not the same thing as what happened before. These companies are way too small um, to compete. Even Disney is very close to the smallness, but can possibly make it. Just to put some numbers around it, you know, Warner has, this is one of the most important media companies in the world with incredible assets, and its equity mm -hmm. value is about 2% of, of Facebook. I mean, it, it, the numbers yeah. here, this thing is, it's trading it's yeah. not even a pimple on the elephant of the media landscape yeah. if you include yeah. Google and Facebook in terms of equity value. Now, if you add in debt, its enterprise value starts to get up more around $70 billion, and that's real. But the mm -hmm. equity value here, somebody could basically – equity does control the company as long as it's profitable. Yeah. I just – this thing is too ripe, Kara. It's yeah, too this ripe. Debt is, this debt – Everything he can't, he's got a cut. He's got a cut. He can't expand. He could buy things, right? He could buy things, correct? That's the one way someone was putting it to me on a on a, pan, a thing. I was like, okay, but so could everybody else. What could they buy? What could they buy? I don't think I actually don't think they have that much capacity given all that yeah, debt. They neither. could merge. Yeah. I mean, they could yeah. say to Hulu, okay, we've all got to we've mm -hmm. got to bulk up. But right. I think it's more likely to go the other way. I think they're yeah. more likely to go good bank, bad bank, and take HBO and some programs from CNN Plus that might be working, and some of the subscription stuff, and say, okay, that's that's the cool the cool kids that trade at a different multiple, and then trade the declining but massively profitable business of ad supported cable, and just milk the shit mm -hmm. out of it. I, I'm not sure those things go yeah. together. It's it's difficult to find a company that has pulled off both of those at the same time. Right. So just for fun, here's how ABC News covered the merger of AOL and Time Warner in 2000, they called it. The most dramatic instance of new media supplanting old media. The deal will be the biggest corporate merger of all time, as well as an aggressive bet. And the online delivery of media is the wave of the future. I was there, and Ted Turner said it's better than sex, I think, at the time. I am worried for this. I think if David Zaslow was smart, and he'd make a lot of money if he thought about this as flipping. Flipping. Do they own that? Do they? Does HGTV own the flipping shows? The house flipping. This is a house flipper, Dave. Probably. I'm sorry. He's going to call me. He's going to say, "Kara, stop doing this." But nonetheless, Dave, it's a house flipper. Um, anyway, we're joined now by a friend of Pivot. <laughs> 
Kathy O'Neill. She's a mathematician, data scientist, and author. In her latest book, The Shame Machine, she looks at the double-edged sword of public shaming, how it can help improve society, but also how businesses, governments, and social media exploit shame to increase profits and other cruel ends. Welcome, Kathy O'Neill. Thanks so much for having me. Scott Galloway had to duck out because his Internet from that fantastic country of Brazil sucks. So let's talk about the book. You Talk about what you've done before so people understand sort of your background in this area. Sure. Um, I'm a mathematician and uh, became a data scientist. Actually, first I became a quant in finance right during the crisis. Then I switched to becoming a data scientist. And I noticed that the, um, the algorithms I was building um, were kind of just making lucky people luckier and unlucky people unluckier. Um, and I started to really dive into the sort of bad side, the dark side of algorithms, the dark side of big data. And I wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. Mm-hmm. Very um, funny. And <laughs> and yeah, so I was research. Actually, the, the way shame came up for me was that I was researching that book. I was talking to teachers who had been fired um, with an algorithm that they nobody could explain to them. And I would ask them, like, well, what did you what did you say when they told you that you had a bad score and you're getting fired? And they'd say, uh, they'd say, well, I, I was told it was math and I wouldn't understand it. And I was like, oh, well, what did you say next? Because I, you know, I was like, you know, that's bullshit. Like, you know, what, what, what kind of answer is that? And you know, and it was, it was more than one of, more than two of the teachers I talked to were like, well, I, I sort of accepted that. You know, and I was like, that that's shame, right? That's math shame. Because it's math. Because sometimes math is correct, right? Math is, I, you know, I, I sometimes look at like WeWork or some other things and I'm like, math, math doesn't add that kind of things. But in this case, it was used in ways that confused. As intimidation. As intimidation. So social media, so it moved on to this idea of shame. How did you get to shame and math, essentially? Well, I, you know, I started from that point. I was like, that's math shame, but it doesn't work on me, right? It, it doesn't work on me because I'm a mathematician, um, you know, and then, but I was like, but it's very powerful. In fact, it, it actually was so powerful. It made those people feel so bad about themselves that they like ceded their rights. And I was like, what kind of power makes us, makes us cede our rights, you know, makes us, it's, it happens before we can think through things. Um, and I kind of, that was an observation I had. And a couple years later, I was doing my own research for bariatric surgery. Um, and I was thinking of myself as a very sort of enlightened fat person who can handle this. And I was really interested in not getting diabetes. And I started doing my research, of course, on Google. And I was inundated with the shame, the ads uh, for all sort of, all the sort of fat shaming ads, which by the way, I had been a data scientist. I knew exactly how that ad ecosystem works. You know, I, I knew exactly why they were targeting me based on my search terms, but it had this incredible effect where I was incapable of concentrating. I was like, I will buy anything. I will do anything. I will subscribe to any crackpot theory to stop feeling this way. And I was like, oh, that's shame. That's the same power I saw happen to those teachers. So, so the idea is shame is mathematical in this case, in what you're being fed or what you're searching and then being fed because of that. Well, shame is algorithmically produced, yes, mm-hmm. on online. And and it's it's not, of course, new. No, because shame, shame's been around for a long time. People can do <laughs> yeah, it without exactly. math, just like what a good dig or whatever, a dunk. It, it takes advantage of human capabilities in this area. I would say that, exactly. I'd say it even hijacks our sort of natural um, impulse. And it's not just to shame ourselves like this. You know, this is like, I'm shaming, I'm ashamed of myself as a fat person for being fat. Um, that is a large part of the shame machine. That's what I talk about, sort of like the f- weight loss industry, you know, uh, you know, trying to make teenage girls feel bad about period funk and sell them a product that probably gives them a yeast infection. Um, that's the kind of thing, that's sort of a standard traditional way of making someone f- feel ashamed so they buy your product. Um, but then I thought to beat myself, well, actually the biggest shame machines of all are the social media platforms because they don't shame us directly and then make us buy a product. 
but rather they create the perfect sort of system, the sort of, sort of atmosphere so that we shame each other and thereby profit them by staying on social media fighting with each other. Right, right. I was actually talking with some of this. They were talking about shame having been, not just shame, but these kind of thing been having around. And I said, it's different because, yes, of course, but it weaponizes and amplifies in a way that it's never been happened before. Are there, can you distinguish between good shame and bad shame? Um, because, you know, there's been a lot of benefits from seeing a lot of these videos of police. Um, what, however you feel about the police, seeing these videos, or the way people are treated or having some of this stuff that's accurate go around. Uh, is that a good shame versus a bad shame? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, that's exactly the kind of question I was trying to answer for myself. I mean, I'd also been part of the Occupy Wall Street movement where it was shame-based, as is every civil rights movement, right? Every movement is trying to hold hold authority to account, right? Saying, hey, powers that be, you're not acting in the ways that you claim that you have ideals and norms, shame on you. And that is, of course, appropriate. So yes, I, I distinguish in my book between what I call punching down shame and punching up shame. Um, but it basically has uh, has to do with who has voice and who has choice. So if you shame somebody who doesn't have the choice to conform to the norm, that's that's bullying. If you um, similarly, if you shame somebody who has like no voice, like can't defend themselves, they can't be seen improving or being redeemed, that is also punching down. And social media almost always, not always, but almost always, uh, sort of conditions us to punch down. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest news around shaming this past year involved Facebook study about teen girls' self-esteem and body image. In your book, you write about similar personal experience. Now, a lot of people see the research isn't quite there, that that it's not just because it's um, correlation isn't causation, right? That, that, that we're not clear and there needs to be more research. Um, and of course, that's what got most of the attention because politicians can seize upon that and say, see, Facebook makes girls feel bad. Um, I'm kind of in the middle. I think there needs to be a lot more research, including data from Facebook, where we really begin to understand if there really is causation here um, and where it starts begins. Because women have been attacked for centuries now, and just they, it's just a new, the latest version of the tool to do so. Yeah, well, two things. First, that I did interview a lot of young women um, mm-hmm. uh, who, who absolutely described things happening to each other and to themselves mm-hmm. that I could not have imagined when I was their age. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it all had to do with Instagram mm-hmm. um, and sort of these body tuning apps. Yeah, anecdotally, it's clear. Curved. Yeah. It is, yeah. And to your second point, yes, I absolutely agree that we don't have scientific evidence, but I'd argue, and I'm sure you agree, that that is by construction, right? These social media companies sit on their IP laws so that they don't have to uh, give access to researchers to do the to do the science, and they don't let the science happen. Um, and there's a reason they don't let the science happen, it, uh, namely because it would be bad news for them, and that it, they would be found to be liable, um, and they don't want that to happen. So it's it's pretty simple. If they had any idea. Um, that they would be cleared by letting researchers in. I'm sure they would. Similarly, if like weight, if like Weight Watchers worked, you know, we'd know, we'd know about that. But if they don't work, they just sort of depend on the failure of their product right. to get repeat customers. Right. So w- when you when you think about what's happening, because public shaming is a problem of personal behavior. Some people are better at it than others. Everyone's susceptible to it. I've watched people I have, um, especially around COVID stuff, there's been a lot of people I liked before who have surprised me with their ability to shame people. I'm kind of good at it, um, I'll admit it, but I tend to punch up rather than down, um, which is my preferred way of punching. Um, But And I do punch, there's no question about it. Um, How do you, is that personal behavior or do networks, what do networks and and these these notions do to make that so? when you're thinking about it is feed yeah. you more or let you see things. I want to resist. But again, t- last today, Lauren Boebert did something really awful about gay people. And I was like, you know what, honey, no way. Not going to let this one go by. And I thought I should you. let it go by. And then I thought I shouldn't. And then I was talking to a friend of mine who's trans. They're like, don't let it go by. And I'm like, okay, I won't let it go by. And you know what I mean? But at the same time, I'm not sure how much of impact it has on her. Well, none on her because she's she seems impervious. Right. I, there's a question of whether it works, and then there's a question of whether it's appropriate. Um, and they're separate questions. And and of course, like there's some people that are actually psychopathic and will never feel shamed, but you can still possibly shame the people that support them. Um, like look at look at what has happened in Russia, for example. 
Um, but yes, I, my, my, my feeling, well, I think the, the most important thing to know is that it is actually, it lights up our pleasure center to shame other people. So it feels good. Um, so it makes sense that we do it a lot, um, especially because we are served the exactly most outrageous um, thing that happened or was said by people in a slightly different sort of inner circle on social media than we happen to be in, number one. So it feels just feels good. But number two, it feels even better because our friends or whatever, our followers, um, champion our, our shaming mm-hmm. attempts, right? Mm-hmm. So, true. Um, so it, it, we are sort of conditioned to not only enjoy it, but also to do it sort of repeatedly and to feel like we're, we're being supported in our doing it, even when it's inappropriate. So that's the nature of social media. But of course, I will say that when you shame people in power for something they have a choice about and they should change and they should do better, mm-hmm. that's not punch. That's not inappropriate. All right. Okay. It well, might not work. I, I think I'm being an asshole sometimes. Anyway, um, when you write, you write uh, just a couple more questions. That some of the first shamers we meet are our parents. It's something I think about a lot. Uh, I had a bit of a shaming mother. Um, how does the problem extend beyond social media? And as a mathematician, how do you quantify that? Well, as a mathematician and a former quant, I quantify it by how much money it makes um, most of the time or how much power it perpetrates, it propagates, I should say. Like there's a lot of shame in, you know, situations like Catholic abuse of of children, right? Um, Because the the victims themselves were shamed as a way of avoiding, um, you know, changing the system itself. And that was not about money, although it ended up being about money. At the time, it was just about like perpetuating the power, the status quo. So that would probably be a way of quantifying it, although that's not really numbers. But you're right. Most like shame is inherently a social thing. It's not something that you would invent if you were by yourself, but we're never by ourselves. We're in communities. Mm-hmm. And our very first community is our family. So our parents are likely, our family are likely to be the first people that shame us. And that's just, it's a very important evolutionary um, sort of reaction to the feeling like I have to behave or I'll be expelled from my community and I might even die of exposure, right? Like it, historically, we would die of exposure if we were expelled. So it's really important that shame works. The problem is it's been hijacked by profiteers. Right, profiteers. So last question, who is profiting the most in the new, you call the new age, who profits in the new age of humiliation? If you had to stack rank a couple of people that profit, who would it be? Oh, I, I would say Mark Zuckerberg profits the most. Um, and and to your exact point about avoiding avoiding actual science being done on the the statistics of who gets who gets harmed by these shaming um, systems that he's built, um, yeah, that's because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to be punched up at. Um, so good for you for doing so <laughs> as much as you can. Um, the system has to change. I will also say, by the way, that probably the biggest shame machine in our country that is sort of a physical machine is the uh, is the prison system. Mm-hmm. It is a inherently shaming and and we are so used to it that we don't really question it, but if we look at other other countries, other models, we'll realize that it doesn't have to be so undignified. Mm-hmm. So last question, what what do you do to stop this? What is there is there anything? People tend to like it. You know, I think it's one of the things I do spend a lot of time is never with Mark talking about his personal stuff or his looks or things like that. I find that so distasteful and you know, people are always like, Kara, don't you hate his hair? I'm like, you know, back the fuck off. Don't talk. You don't need. I did it to Bill Maher. He started to insult him. Not, you know, I was like, you really shouldn't talk about looks and hair at this moment, although you have better hair. Um, but it has hardly anything to do with your criticism. And so um, talk about that. Like, how do you how do you separate what are really cruel, what's cruelty from what's what's OK, I guess? There has to be some level of shame in any society. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shame. We shouldn't throw it away. We should just use it carefully. So we shouldn't shame people uh, based on things they can't actually change, like their looks. Um, We should change. We should shame people only on things that they can change. And we also have to actually understand what it means to change. Like it's it's one thing to say, go on a diet. It's another thing to like actually lose 100 pounds. Um, And that's really, really difficult, if not impossible for most people or to quit smoking or to stop um, smoking um, heroin or whatever it is, you know, like there's just an enormous amount of assumption on the shamer's part that this is a choice when it really isn't a choice. Um, that's on a personal level. We can just choose not to do it. We should, we absolutely must choose not to shame our children for their looks or their weight, for example. At a systemic level, we 
to the extent that we have control over the design of systems, like whether it's a social media platform or a prison, we have to look for dignity violations, where, which I talk about in the book is sort of like signs, red flags that you are building in shame, you're embedding shame into your process, and we should uh, avoid them at all costs. So there is, though, my last question, there is a part of the DNA of the United States. Trump is not fresh and new. You know what I mean? Like, this is not, he's just, or he's just, like I said previously, crimin in plain sight of stuff that people were doing. They were talking about Jared Kushner and taking the money. I was like, they all take money, but just quietly. Um, So if you had to change one thing, what would it be besides human nature, which I think is impossible? I don't think it's possible to change human nature, but I do think we have become more punitive, to your point. Mm-hmm. And yes, we are. We've always been punitive. We've wanted to see people punished, and that is a fact about us. But I think our our thirst for vengeance and revenge and punishment has gotten um, accelerated and over like overdone in the age of social media. And I do think that the social media engines are responsible for that. All right. The book is called The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation. Thank you, Kathy O'Neill. Thank you so much. All right, we'll go on one more quick break. We'll be back for predictions. Support for the show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for business to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers organized by skills and experience. Plus, you can streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. Fiverr Pro is perfect for businesses that want to work with top talent for immediate or long-term needs. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time, allowing you to flex your budget without any headcount constraints. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code PIVOT for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code PIVOT. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Scott, let's rehear that prediction of yours in a short and sweet way. Until last week, the most influential media firm in the world that was in play was Twitter. And it's because it has a single class of shares and it was dramatically overvalued. That is no longer the true. It has a human walking poison pill that is erratic and the wealthiest man in the world. Nobody wants to deal with him. So the thing is no longer in play. Now, the media firm that has the greatest assets in a single class of shares and is in play from day one, i.e. now, is Warner. An activist shows up in the next 12 months with ideas on how to, quote unquote, add value minus all the ridiculous fucking Twitter polls. All right. Those are some good predictions. I predict, I don't know. I think Elon and his friends, like Peter Thiel, are in a nasty mood, lots of money. They could drive themselves right into a wall kind of thing. I just don't, I think at some level, they don't give a fuck anymore. Um, so I don't know. I'm I, I, I'm a little in the I don't know camp. But anyway, as always, we want your questions. If you've got something to ask about business, tech, media, or just need some fashion advice, just reach out to us. Go to nymag.com slash pivot or call 855-51-PIVOT. The link is also in our show notes. We'll be back on Friday for more. And I will read us out um, because Scott has got to go. He's got other things to do in Brazil. Scott, enjoy Sao Paulo uh, and, and get some rest. I would really like you to get some rest. I know you're tired. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate the concern. Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Engel, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Enderdot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows and Mia Silverio. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. 
We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business, as long as Scott can get himself some fucking internet. Thanks, everybody. 